0: Sure it's good to be back with you today. Today is a a special day for me. Uh, As of today, I have been married for 18 years. Thank you. Still today, we've never had an argument. Not even a frustration um, for 18 years. And I just got to tell you, Marriage is so easy, guys. Um, No, I I can't say that. But what I can say is that I've had a really good wife. And uh, she has loved me really well for a long time. And in fact, she's probably loved me a little too well. And uh, my problems still today, if I'm selfish and troublesome in some ways, are because she has enabled me. And um, I really blame her for that. And I know the Lord understands. Let me pray for us. Lord, please come and meet us now. Lift up the weak. Restore the broken hearts bind us to yourself so that we can truly live in Jesus name we pray amen when uh sydney was little we watched uh i think it was an avengers cartoon it was something like that and uh character on there said uh said something i was not ever allowed to say as a kid i guess i didn't grow up saying it uh what the heck <laughs> and uh Sydney, Sydney thought the character said, what the hank? <laughs> and she thought it was so funny that this character said, what the hank? And uh, so she would just laugh and, and say, what the hank? And still to this day, Olivia and I, we say, what the hank? When we're, we're talking about something, uh, something that might be confusing or surprising or whatever. Well, I thought about that today. This passage is one of those passages that you come to and you say, what the hank? Uh, what is going on here when, when, you, when you see this passage about the Spirit and the water and the blood? It seems like John's community would have understood this, but maybe we don't. Maybe we don't know what they're talking about. And fortunately, I think we can make some progress. we am going to try to do that. I want to start by uh, telling you a brief story about my, uh, my brother, Matt. He uh, was working with a very intelligent guy years ago who had a blog or something, and and I think he was an atheist, maybe new-agey or something, agnostic, something along those lines. And he, uh, he wrote a blog, and he was, he was wrestling with death as somebody who doesn't have much to believe in. And I believe the title of his post was Death I Embrace. And the way he had reasoned it out was something about how, well, matter never is completely dissolved. And it, it goes on, transfers from one form to another, and goes on forever. And so if that's true of me, then uh, I'm going to go on forever. So death I embrace, something like that. And Matt had shared this with me and just asked my opinion on it. Matt's a, a brilliant guy himself. And, uh, uh, and so I, I wrote him back with just some possibilities of, of what I was thinking about the, the guy's uh, argument, the guy's statement. And, and Matt said, yeah, that, that's good. I'll probably follow something along those lines. And he said, I think I'm going to respond and call my response, life I embrace. And I always thought that was really good. Because that is what we do as Christians. We embrace life. And you see, a lot of people live in a world where the best they can do is learn to make do with death. And maybe try to get by and say, well, um, if if I think about it a certain way, if I position my mind a certain way or distract myself with certain things, then I can just say, okay, I'll embrace death and then I'll move on. Christians aren't called to just embrace death, we're called to embrace life. And here in this passage, John brings us to life. As we come to the end of this book, he comes back to where he started and he says, Life is for you. That's what we want to proclaim to the church. True life is for us. True life is for everybody who knows Jesus Christ. God testifies to the truth. The truth of this life. He has testified in the past. He's testified objectively and historically, and he testifies subjectively and internally. And we're going to see all of that today in this passage. So let me just start reading again in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. Let me just start back at verse 5 so, so then we can follow through. Who is it that overcomes the world? except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's who overcomes the world, those who have their faith in Jesus. Then we follow through to verse 6. This Jesus is the one who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood, and the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. Now, there are three major ways of understanding, maybe four, this passage. One that some have held is that this is a reference to the sacraments, to the water of baptism today and to the, the Lord's table. But that seems unlikely. John is not dealing with uh, ritual or sacrament in First John. He's uh, dealing with the history of Jesus. So uh, even though that might be included as a further reference or something that might be, uh, we might could make an application or something like that, it seems unlikely that that would be the interpretation. Another interpretation is that this refers back to the the death of Jesus, to his death on the cross, when they pierced his side, John 19 records this, they pierced his side, and both water and blood came from the side of Jesus. I have to tell you, there's something to that. Um, And it could be right. Um, One of those places where we may not have certainty. But uh, the majority of interpreters go with a third option. And that is that this is a reference both to Jesus' baptism... And to his death, to the water of his baptism, where the Spirit of God, remember, came upon him, and God's voice spoke about him. To that moment of recognition of who Jesus was, and also to his death. Now, there was a, I think Brother Terry talked about this maybe several weeks back, uh, a heretic named Carinthius, or Serentheus, how, how you say his name. And uh, it, the, you can't prove that John is addressing him directly here but it may be that something like his ideas something connected to those were present when John is writing 1 John and what he taught was that the Christ some kind of deity or or spiritual being the Christ came upon Jesus at his baptism so Jesus was just a, a man maybe a good man but he was just a man and then the Christ came upon him at his baptism But then, the Christ didn't suffer. The Christ wouldn't die. No, that couldn't happen to him. So he left before his death. Now do you see how this might be something John is addressing here? Because he says, this is he who came by water, but not by water only. You can say he came by baptism, but not just by baptism. Another take on this that has some merit by the way, uh, closely related, is that the water actually refers to Jesus' human birth. Um, he came by, by birth, and he, by physical birth, and he came by death as well. Either way, what you're getting at is the full incarnation of Jesus. He was fully God, and he was fully man. In the New Living Translation, it spells it out like this. And Jesus Christ was revealed as God's Son by his baptism in water and by shedding his blood on the cross. Not by water only, but by water and blood. So, so that, that is uh, what we could say at least as a good possibility. Baptism or his birth, something like that, the water side of things. But it's not by that only. It's not that Jesus just somehow represented uh, God because Christ came and was upon him and then he did it die. No, Jesus, death matters. Jesus, God's son, the Christ, is the one who died for us. We are embracing with with John. If we're embracing what John taught, we're embracing the full incarnation of Jesus. He was fully God and he was fully man. This is central Christian doctrine, and our faith hangs on this. Do you know that history matters? And we're talking about the internal subjective witness in a minute, but objective history matters to the Christian faith. What happened? In the history of the world, what happened with Jesus matters to our faith. You cannot separate our faith from history. And this is just another way of saying uh, that our faith is about Jesus. Our faith isn't just about principles. Our faith isn't just about ethics. It's not just about teaching us to think a certain way. Our faith is about Jesus. And that will get us thinking the right way. That will get us living the right way. But first of all, we are about a person who's been revealed historically, who reveals God to us. And we have to, we have to really stand for this in our world today. You know, there's a saying about Buddha, the Buddha. And this is not to say that, I hope you understand that when I talk about other religions, I'm not saying that all, that's ba- all is bad in them. Um, and uh, I think you can find a lot of good historically in other places. But there's a saying about uh, the Buddha. One of the, the, the teachers of Buddhism said that if you, if you encounter the Buddha, you should kill him. If you encounter him today, you should kill him. Now, it's not recommending violence and saying we should uh, uh, go out and try to take somebody's life. But at least one possible meaning of that, and I'm going to show it to you here uh, from something I just looked up online, is it has to do with the Buddha being less important than his teaching. Another paradox inherent in this teaching is our tendency, this teaching that you should kill the Buddha, is our tendency to make enlightenment a thing, if you think of that being the goal, to be enlightened. And then we make it a thing like a person, a place, a guru, a book, a religion, something we can touch and feel. Remember how John t- starts his, his uh, epistle? That which we have seen, that which we've heard, that which our hands have touched. This is... This is uh, the contrast with what we 're dealing with here with Buddhism, we tend to make enlightenment about something we can touch and feel and more importantly use as a shortcut to finding our own path. The Buddha is simply the pointer to enlightenment. It is not a person journeying on the road but a single expression of realized consciousness that we may bump into on our own journey so you see. The basic idea is the Buddha doesn't matter. What matters is what he taught. Do you know what? That's not the case with the Christian faith. Jesus Christ matters. The person of Christ matters. That which we have seen and heard and our hands have handled and we've looked upon him, that was the life revealed and you don't get to enlightenment outside of him. You get to enlightenment as you're caught up in him. And it's his life. Becomes your life. That's enlightenment for the Christian. We don't just need principles. We don't just need rules and teachings. We need the person of Jesus to reveal the heart of God to us. And let our hearts come awake in that. Because we are made for more than thinking and trying and searching to live out something, we are made for the life from above. We are made for love of a person. That's when the human heart comes alive. Loving Jesus. Adoring Him and adoring God through Him. Then we come to live. E. E. Stanley Jones said that a weeping child is not satisfied with the principle of motherhood. What that child needs is a mother. And the human heart is not satisfied with the principle of go love people. Go be a better person. Go be compassionate. That's great. I wish more people would do it. But that's not ultimately what we're made for. We are made for God. We are created in the image of God and we've fallen, but he wants to restore us. He wants to give us his heart and connect us to him and let eternal life begin. This is what you're in on if you're going to be a Christian. And we have to emphasize that the love of God is made manifest, especially in the cross of Christ. We don't get Christianity without a cross. Guys, we cannot minimize the cross of Jesus. We don't have to understand atonement theories perfectly. I'm still working out my own understanding in those areas. But we have to have the cross at the center of our faith. We cannot say that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the King, the Son of God, we cannot join the heretics in saying, He didn't die for us. Because the love of God is manifest, the reconciliation of God is manifest in the cross of Christ. Jesus was God in the flesh. When people talked to Jesus, they talked to God. When they, when they touched Jesus, they touched God. And see, then you get the Spirit. Let me go back over here. The Spirit, who is the truth, confirms it with this testimony. The Spirit, we might say, testifies to these things, what has happened with Jesus historically, and the Spirit testifies through these things to us. We move here from the objective to the subjective. It's both, right? We have objective testimony and we have subjective testimony. The Spirit makes these things real to us. Those of you who were with us in Louisiana last week, I talked at length about this, how the Spirit in 1 John is connected to the truth. There's a special emphasis there. Now, the Spirit's connected to more than that. If you want to look at the New Testament, it's connected to to mighty experiences, right? And we want to affirm all the wonderful experiences God gives us. But we don't want to do that uh, in a way that overlooks the the fundamental thing that, that saving faith is an experience of the Spirit. Do you know that? And so we're not gonna go back through those scriptures right now, but but we know the truth by the Spirit. In the context of false prophecy in chapter four, you get you have overcome these false teachers. How have you overcome? Because he who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. That's how you overcome. Some of you have lived for years through great trials and hardships, and there have been times when you've wondered if you could continue with Jesus, and yet you have. You know how you have? There's a great one in you who is greater than every obstacle that's ever been thrown your way. And that is evidence of your salvation. That in itself is a place to lean and to rest. We don't just rest on, boy, I've had powerful experiences like we talked about last week for those of you who were there. Powerful experiences happen, and thank God, give us more of them. But if you're just depending on those, you may end up very frustrated because even the greatest saints go through dry spells. We talked about John Wesley last week and how he uh, at one point thought people needed more experience, more uh, of a, a direct experience of the assurance of the love of God in order to really be in. And eventually he went through his own dry spell and wondered whether he himself was a Christian had ever been a Christian and he came to the clu- conclusion over time that you can be a faithful servant of Jesus and not have all the same experiences that other people have he distinguishes between the the faith of a servant and the faith of a son and I want to say to you I know I know this is repeat for those of you who were there last week um, but I just want to say this again I think it's really really important You may not yet have the faith of a son or a daughter. The deep assurance of the love that God has for you. Brother Terry preached so beautifully about this last week. Uh, this idea that God loves us uh, in a way we, we could never have dreamed up, in a way we would never think is true outside of revelation. Um, you may not have that yet. You may just have the faith of a servant, but let me say to you, you can please God with the faith of a servant. And the reason you have that faith is because the Holy Spirit has given it to you. And Your life is trusting Jesus. And if you're learning to live for him, if you're seeking him, we're not just talking about some kind of, you know, Say, oh yeah, I believe that in some kind of superficial way, and then live however you want to. That's not obviously First John's not, not pointing us towards that. But but if you if you're given a faith where you believe, where you where you know who He is, and you're clinging to Him with your life, then go forward and be a good servant, and know that He's working in you, and welcome what He gives you further beyond that. Be ready for the Spirit to continue to move powerfully to give you more than you've had yet. The Spirit sustains our faith. Let's move to these next verses here. Very quickly, verses 9 and 10. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. This is very simple and straightforward, really. For this is the testimony of God that, we, that he is born concerning his Son. In other words, if you know how to believe when people testify... Then believe when God testifies to false. us. God is the one who's bearing witness to Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Now we go to an inner witness, right? Something that goes beyond the external. When you believe this, this, this testimony is within you. Whoever does not believe God has made God a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. If you reject this, you're rejecting God. That's what John is saying. So think very seriously about what you're doing. I want to move to the last part of this passage now. Verse 11. And here the testimony shifts. It's different. It's not just about what happened in the past. but Not just about what Jesus did. He says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. So now the testimony is not just about back there. The testimony is somehow related to us and the life that we have now. And this connects us back to chapter 1. As I've already said, I'll just read it to you, though. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. This is the life that came in Jesus. The future life, the life of the age to come. The Jews, uh, at least some of them thought in terms of the, the present and the future age, right? But with Jesus, what the Christians came to believe is that the future age had come into the present. And the life of that future age, when God would make things right, is now brought now into the present. Let me read to you just the beautiful words of N.T. Wright on this. With the early Christians, they believed the future had burst into the present. Even though the present time wasn't ready for it. The word for that future was life. Life as it was meant to be. Life in its full, vibrant meaning. A life which death tried to corrupt, thwart, and kill. But a life which had overcome death itself and now was on offer to anyone who wanted to come and take it. Life itself had come to life. Had taken the form of a human being coming into the present from God's future. Coming to display God's coming age. Look at those words. Life as it was meant to be. This is Jesus. This is what people saw. Life in its full, vibrant meaning. Life that had overcome death itself. That life is on offer to people today. Listen to these, one more page of uh, N.T. Wright's words. There is a kind of life, a quality of life, which is God's very own life. And which God himself is now sharing with people who have heard and seen the life to come life. The life to come life called Jesus. This is God's life. And people are reborn. You know know what new birth language is? We're born again. That's a new life. God's life. God's very own life. He's planting in people. Now let me just say a, a, a little bit about this so we can make more sense of it before I close. Uh, just a critical point, we have to understand that, that in the New Testament, salvation is inextricably connected to life. We cannot reduce it to forgiveness. We cannot reduce it to going to church. We cannot reduce it to being in certain fellowships. We cannot even reduce it to good things like let's go love. Let's go, let's go try to be better people. Let's go keep moral rules. That's not what we're in for. We're in for something much bigger than that that flows into those things. It's God's life, his seed being planted in us that then grows and grows into something different. Dallas Willard, like so many other things, helped me to understand this. Think about what life is, life is what, what grows, uh, it develops, it connects with its environment and it interacts with its environment in a certain way. And that's why a tree has to have a certain environment to live. It'll take in sunlight, it'll produce leaves, it'll do that photosynthesis thing and all that kind of stuff that uh, goes on with trees, all right? And a cat has a different kind of life, and a cat's going to do different kinds of things. It's going to naturally interact with mice and uh, uh, jump around and chase things that run across the floor, you know? There's that, a different kind of life between a cat and a tree, and they interact with their environments differently, right? And there's a normal human kind of life, but what the New Testament teaches is that that normal human life that is so frequently caught up in anger, in sadness, in conflict, that's basically death compared to the life of God that He plants in people. And when you become a Christian, God plants His life in you. But now here's the problem, okay? And We just have to keep preaching this over and over and over and praying it over and over and over that God will help us to get it. The problem is, that largely, in the Christian church today, we've lost this understanding of salvation. Well, the New Testament teaches about life over and over and over again. And we have thought it's just some kind of metaphor for trying to be a little bit better people. We thought it's a metaphor for our moral efforts or something like that. And so we haven't really understood that we can enter life. And so we don't learn how to naturally engage with the environment we are made for like that kind of life does that environment we're made for ultimately is a person it is God himself God revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ and we have fellowship with him and it's only as we learn to fellowship with God that this life will grow and develop into what it is. And we minimize this, we dismiss it, we, we read with filters that sort of just allow it to, to just graze over us as, as, we, as we read. And then we look around at the Christian church and we say, really, our lives aren't much different than those who aren't Christians. And we say, well, the promises aren't true. No, the problem is we have not proclaimed the gospel truly. We proclaimed a gospel that's told people just get your sins forgiven and you can go to heaven one day. Or a gospel that says just go to church and God will be pleased with you. We have not proclaimed a gospel that takes us into spiritual life and says have fellowship with God and then watch what happens as you have this fellowship with God. That's the environment in which we grow. And this is real and it's true. And if you have come to Christ in faith, you've been baptized into Christ, you have life in you. And I want to invite you to step into learning, step further in to learn how to grow this life. To leave the death behind. You've had a new birth. Don't let it be wasted. We are made for fellowship with God. Well, let me get to the final verse here. Verse 12. This is the unpopular one. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. According to John, this kind of life, you only get it in Jesus. When you think about that, this is just really absurd. <laughs> it's absurd to our natural way of thinking. Um, my friend Billy Abraham, in one of his books, writes, imagine, and this is not an exact quote, but he, he talks about his friend, well, I'm not sure if it's his friend or just, just uh, somebody in Ireland, but some, some guy in Ireland, Tom McCall or something. <laughs> I should have looked over this, I guess, better before I started to tell it. Uh, uh, he says, imagine that this guy killed by a terrorist, imagine that we went around and, and, and started proclaiming, that the world can only be saved through Tom McCall. Just think about that. Everybody think you're a total idiot. And yet this is what the early Christians were saying about Jesus Christ. Because something was different. This was the full God and the full man. Now, we don't have time, and we're not going to get into questions about, you know, what do we, what do, we do with people who haven't heard the gospel? And... Uh, people who are in other religions where they maybe just don't have the ability to receive it, uh, we can trust God's mercy with that. And uh, we, can, we can say that God will do right by everybody on the planet. Okay, And, and so we relax about those kind of things. God's going to do right by, by that. But we still have to proclaim everybody needs Jesus. And everybody come to Jesus. That's what we do as a church. We evangelize. We gospel. We say, come on in and you'll find something in Jesus that you don't get other places. And this is Because the Spirit has let us know that Jesus is who the church always claimed he was. He has come by water and blood. He is fully God and fully man. And we just worship. The first evidence of the Spirit's work in our hearts is that we know that's true. And we want to bow down in worship. And I'm going to close today with uh, these words from a Charles Wesley hymn. I'm sorry if that's too small for you to see, but uh, I'll read it to you. This is a a hymn about the incarnation. And it shows us what worship, what motivates worship, maybe we should say, when we think about Jesus. Let earth and heaven combine, angels and men agree, to praise in songs divine, the incarnate deity. That's Jesus. Our God contracted to a span incomprehensibly made man. God come down. Incomprehensibly made man. He laid his glory by and wrapped him in our clay unmarked by human eye. People didn't notice him. The latent Godhead lay. Infant of days he here became and bore the beloved Emmanuel's name. You know what Emmanuel means? God with us. Yeah. Yeah. Unsearchable the love that has the Savior brought, the grace is far above. Or man's or angel's thought, suffice for us that God we know, our God is manifest below. It's far beyond any human thinking, right? But it suffices for us that we know God, because God has been made manifest below. Last, last verse we'll read. He stands in flesh to appear widest extremes to join to bring our vileness near and to make us all divine make us share the nature of God and we the life of God shall know can you hear those words we the life of God shall know for God is manifest below I want to urge you, my brothers and sisters, do not settle for the superficial substitutes that are out there. Press in, press on to the life of God that's made manifest in Jesus Christ. Praise team, would you guys come on up?